We've been walking um, through the past year, through the year of biblical literacy, and we are landing the plane this evening. Um, For the next four weeks, we're going to um, uh, walk through uh, the Advent season together. Um, We're going to hear from different people in our community over the next four weeks. I'm really excited um, for some of the sermons that I know they're already preparing. Um, But we've been walking through this year of biblical literacy, and we're ending, we, 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 we spent a huge chunk of the year on the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. And then um, we spent time in the Gospels looking at the character of Christ. And then the entire rest of the New Testament we are combining into two weeks, um, centered around the person of Paul. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge. Um, and the reason we're focusing on Paul is because Paul is, besides Jesus, is the most important person um, for the formation and the foundation of the church. Right? Who the church becomes, who the church is today, what we know of the church, we know because of a guy by the name of Paul. And what we said last week is that Paul creates a viral movement of churches, a viral movement of churches full of all people of all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities and places in life, and that all these diverse and unique people came together and were circled and centered around the person of Jesus. It was a fellowship of differences. Like when you walked in the early Christian community, when you walked into an early Christian church, the the diversity in that room would have been mind-boggling to um, people in the first and second century. And what Paul accomplished was unheard of in the ancient world because he brought together people who had nothing in common, who would have never been in the same room together because they were different religious backgrounds and different ethnicities and social classes, And then through the waters of baptism and through the table, the bread and the wine, they didn't just become friends, but the the proclamation was that they became family, that they became one. And what I find fascinating is when Paul was executed, when Paul was executed, the church had just begun to take off. What later comes, only 150 to 200 years later, what later comes would have blown Paul's mind. So when he dies, it is simply this viral movement of these little house churches kind of spread around the Mediterranean rim. And within 150 to 200 years after Paul dies, it becomes one of the dominant religions throughout the Roman Empire. And not because, as many people assume, because of a guy by the name of Constantine who makes it the official um, religion of Rome. Most scholars now believe that the reason that um, Constantine adopts Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire is because of its influence, because politicians can tell which way the winds are blowing. And so he believed it was a good political move because there was such power in this diverse community of people who were centered around King Jesus. And uh, one of the Roman governors said that when you, li- t- speaking of the early Christian communities, he said, they sing hymns to the one they call Christ as if they were singing to God. Okay, so at the jumping off point, I want to use the same verse we began with last week. We said this, Paul, a servant of the Messiah Jesus, called to be an apostle. An apostle is simply a churchy word which never gets, got translated properly because it later becomes an official title. Um, but when it's being used here, what he means is an, an official representative. That's all apostle meant in ancient Greek. So Paul, a servant of the Messiah Jesus, called to be an official representative who was set apart 
for God's good news, which he promised long ago through the prophets and the sacred scriptures, or the Bible, or the Holy Scriptures. And this good news is about God's son, whose physical lineage was from the line of David. This is key. Paul sees Christianity as the fulfillment of the Jesus, or of the, sees Christianity as the fulfillment of, um, of the expectation in the Hebrew scriptures whose physical lineage was from the line of David, and through the Holy Spirit, he was established as the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. And the heartbeat of Paul's message, the heartbeat of Paul's message were two pieces that we, um, the first piece we explored last week. The first was to call all nations to faithful obedience, to call all nations, so it is this inclusive call like nothing excludes you from coming to God's table, right? For Paul, everyone was invited, but it was also exclusive because it centered and focused around a radical obedience to the risen Lord, King Jesus. Now, you know this, but no matter how large and diverse a group of people are, if they are trying to unify, every call to unity has some exclusive center. And for Paul, the exclusive center was the risen Lord. And this allowed a ridiculously diverse group of people to come together. Now, what's happened, though, is that people often make Christianity in their own image. Western uh, descendants of Western Europeans um, are particularly good at that. And so um, there is a photo that you've probably seen some iteration, iteration of called Madonna and Child. Um, there it is. That is a beautiful white baby um, and an equally white Mary. I don't know much about what Jesus looked like in the ancient Near Eastern world. That is not it. Um, but the problem was is that people always try to co-opt whatever religion for their own purposes. Eastern or I mean Western Europeans try to co-opt Christianity and make it in their own image. But one of the fascinating things I think that we see is that, that, that Christianity will not be co-opted by any people group or by any ethnicity or even by people in power. And so today in the Middle East, if you were to go to Nazareth, um, when Jesus was alive, uh, Nazareth was a town of about 500 people. Um, it was a very small, very poor town. It was considered on the other side of the tracks. Um, probably about, uh, uh, they, there was no synagogue in the town. Anyway, it was a really small town. Um, today, it's a town of about 100,000 people. And in the town of Nazareth, there is the largest Catholic church in all the Middle East. And when you go in, um, when you walk into the main room, lining the walls are mosaics, which have, been, which have been submitted by various people groups around the world of their own take on the Madonna, on the mother and child. It's really fascinating. I have a couple of them here. Um, we have, uh, first is Vietnam, and then Thailand, uh, and then Korea, and then Ethiopia, and France, and Italy, and I can never read the one in the middle, and then on the end is Belarus. Um, and and there's, there's tons more. It's really interesting to Google Church of the Annunciation um, in, in Nazareth and, and to look at, at these images. Because Christianity is not a Western religion. Jesus is not captive to any one nation or any one group of people. And he can never be co-opted by a single ethnic group. The resurrected Jesus, as Paul said, is the king of all nations. And, is one of the, and Christianity is the most, diverse, the most diverse religion in human history. There's never been anything else like it. And what all the apostles see in the person of Jesus, what all the apostles see is they see the face of God. They believe that when you look into the face of Jesus, you see the face of God. 
But Paul's heartbeat, the thing that continues to drive him, is this inclusive mission of calling all people, all people, to God. Now, we're going to shift gears. We're going to move from the inclusive Paul to the exclusive Paul. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures and in, um, in the ancient Jewish tradition, there were barriers, there were boundary markers that separated who was in and who was out. So there are all these various practices to help keep to provide a gate, right? So you knew who was in and who was out. And um, the ways to mark them as the covenant people of God. And so you have, um, you, you have uh, uh, eating kosher, things like eating kosher, um, keeping Sabbath, circumcision of, the, of males, um, worship centered around the temple in Jerusalem. And when the Jesus movement comes, what Paul says is that's all fine. If you want to keep doing that, keep doing it. But that is no longer the boundary line of who is in and who is out. Paul says, look, when you come to God's table, you have to lay down all the other identities that you bring with you. So um, does anyone know who propaganda is? Um, not the concept, the, the, the spoken word artist. Um, propaganda is the spoken word artist, and he has this great uh, spoken word piece um, called uh, Who Am I? And then his answer is, it's complicated, right? Because we are all made up of all sorts of identities. I mean, most of us are American. Um, we've got one or two Australians here. We're, we're Americans. Um, we, some of you bring in a, a denominational identity, right? You're maybe Southern Baptist or Episcopalian or Catholic, right? So you have all these different things to make up who you are. And Paul's like, that's cool. You can keep these things, these pieces that make up who you are, but the overriding identity is that your allegiance, your commitment, is to King Jesus, to who you are in King Jesus. And this has been the tension and the paradox for, for 2,000 years of how do we be fully devoted followers of Jesus and be people who, who are also good Americans? This is a challenge, particularly Anabaptist folk, um, Mennonites and Amish have talked about this for hundreds of years, right? How are, we, how, do we both, how are we both in a nation state or whatever it might be, but yet still be fully and committed followers of Jesus? And what marked the earliest followers of Jesus, what marked them was not their skin color or their socioeconomic class or the boundary lines that had marked the early Jewish people. Paul creates a whole new boundary line. And so this week, um, because it was Thanksgiving and I had extra time, I went through and tried to read um, as much as I could of Paul's writings around how you should live your life. It's really, it's really worthwhile. Actually, Paul, all Paul's readings are worth reading. We forget sometimes the depth and the beauty that are there. He also makes you upset at times, and at times you're thinking, dude, you could have said that with way fewer words. Um, but, but, but Paul is trying to help people live a life that looks like Jesus. That's what he's trying to do in many of these letters, because he's writing all these, these books of the Bible are simply letters that Paul is writing to churches around the Mediterranean Rim, trying to help them look, learn to look in, uh, like Jesus. And, and often it's about how do you live peaceably with other people? He's like, stop living in discord, be patient, settle down, it's not that big a deal, chill out. So there's all this talk of being patient and being calm. But then I think uh, this passage really helps sum up what Paul, how Paul talks about. We'll first use a negative passage, and then he provides us with a positive passage. He says this, The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, 
factions and envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. He also, in other passages, adds greed. Um, He just has this whole uh, being patient. He has all these things. But then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. This is the thing that separates you. This is the thing that when people see, it will not be your color of your skin that will let them know you're a follower of Jesus. It will be these, these boundary markers. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's forbearance. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentle. And it's self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh or crucified the old person, the old humanity. Remember last week we talked about Paul always talks about we are new humans. They've crucified the old humanity, the flesh, and with its passions and desire. Paul believes that the thing that will set us apart are, are these boundary the mark The new markers of the new community will be things like love and joy and peace and kindness. That is how people will know we're followers of Jesus. But, more awkwardly, there are two things that Paul continues to refer to. One makes us uncomfortable, the other one we don't really understand. And so what I want to do is dig into it. The first is sex. Paul talks a lot about sex. And as good Westerners, this makes us a bit uncomfortable because Paul seems a bit prudish about sex. And the second thing is he often talks about idolatry. There's two things that Paul tells us to flee. He tells us to flee sexual immorality, and he tells us to flee idolatry. Idolatry, we really don't know what it means. Um, Sex, we do. Okay. Um, This passage, and we're going to begin with uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Paul says this. This kind of sets up how Paul approaches both these things. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. In Paul's mind, it's, un- it's, it's important to understand his metaphysics around um, what we would refer to as um, the soul. There was this moment in history, it was a fairly long moment in history, where we had a fairly dualistic um, understanding of body and soul. So if you grew up anything like me, um, the soul was something that kind of floated around inside of you, and then you had a body that the soul inhabited. I remember we used to, my freshman, soft, I mean, my freshman entered a philosophy class. This was like the thing that really, like, I wanted to dig down in because, like, I wanted to understand how body and soul worked. And apparently people throughout history have been trying to figure this out. It got as weird and creepy um, as they would actually weigh bodies as they were dying. They would put them on a giant scale as they were dying to see exactly how much a soul weighed. And they got really stoked because it turns out when you, when you die, this is information for you for the future, um, <laughs> when you die, you, your body, for whatever reason, you lose a, a tiny bit of weight. And so they got really stoked because they're like, we finally know how much the soul weighs. But for Paul... But for Paul uh, um, and for ancient Judaism, this would have been a ridiculous idea. This is something we inherit from the Greeks, right, or um, in Cartesian dualism and all this. But, But for Paul, it was a whole person, complex and interwoven. We were embodied creatures. Body, mind, spirit, emotion are all packed together as one. You cannot separate them out. It's the Gnostics. It's a cult 
that later comes and creates this idea that there's a separate body and soul, and that someday, that the bodies are bad, right? This is where we end up getting all the crap that we get later on in Christianity uh, that, that makes sex to be a bad and a negative thing that gives us the modesty movement, the purity movement, and all the other things that have caused so much damage. The reason was is because the body was seen as being bad. Fleshly, earthly desires were seen as being bad. The soul was seen as being good. And if we could just free the stupid soul from the body, then it would be really holy, right? I'm a really good person inside. Believe me, it's this body that continues to trip me up. Paul would have said, seen that as being ridiculous. But Paul would have taken it a step further. Not only are we a complex web of emotion and all these things that make us up, but Paul believed that as followers of Jesus, we are now interwoven, not only our body, but we are interwoven into the body of Christ. We are one. And so when Paul hears that men in Corinth, that men in Corinth are still going down, I'm dropping stuff out of my pocket, um, when he hears that the men in Corinth are still going down to the temple and getting a little bit on the side from the temple prostitute, he said, you can't keep doing that. And this is, you have to understand, we're going to talk a bit more in just a second, but in that world, it was very, very common for a man to have a wife and also have a mistress and also occasionally go down to the temple and, and use the services of a temple prostitute. And Paul says this, don't you know that your bodies are members of the Messiah? So then should I take any member of the Messiah and unite it with a prostitute? No way. Don't you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute becomes one with her in body? He continues on, flee sexual immorality. You do not belong to yourself. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. And I think Paul would extend this on beyond just sex, right? Sex is an easy topic to like hit people hard on. But Paul would have extended this on. The way you live your life, the choices you make with your vocation, the choices you make, um, the way you serve other people, the ways you use your body, they matter. They matter. Paul would say, look, you are a part of something bigger. Acknowledge that, realize that, be thoughtful about it. And this has big implications of how we use our body. Paul would say, look, you belong to the church. You belong to this group of people. You can't just do whatever you want. This is why Paul develops the theology of the, your body as a temple. It is the space. It is the temple of the Lord. No longer is the temple in Jerusalem. Now you are the place where, this, where God's spirit inhabits. Now, Paul is developing these ideas, both using the teachings of Jesus and the Hebrew Scriptures, because neither, neither tradition, neither Jesus, Jesus isn't particularly a tradition, but neither the Jewish tradition or Jesus um, had a low or negative view of sex and sexuality, of like of sex. This is, like I said, this is something that comes much later. And so we're actually, you're going to really be stoked about this. Um, we're going to do a five-part series next year on sex and uh, on sex, because it, uh, sex and relationships, because it's, it's something that's often on our minds, but one of two things. One, we want to talk about it, but it's awkward. It just is. It's awkward to talk about. And, and then the other thing is, you don't really want your church talking about it, because whenever we do talk about it, we tend to botch it and make, have people have a lot of guilt. Um, and, and so what we're going to do is in five-part seri uh, five series to see exactly how guilty we can make all of you. Um, <laughs> But I think it's something we have to talk about. Because I think the irony in our culture, the irony of our culture is that Christians are seen as having a negative <clears throat> or low view of sex. 
But in fact, we actually have a very high view of sex. And I've been thinking about this a lot um, lately. Um, in this, this backlash over the past few months against sexual assault, I kept thinking, like, we, this shouldn't, we should have been the ones who were leading this charge against the sexual assault against women, that, this was, that violence against women and sexual assault against women is wrong. Right? We should have been the ones shouting this from the mountaintops. And what's happening, and this is, I, I rarely ever get political, but when it's like a family matter, and I, like you need to know my kind of lineage, I am like an, a good Western evangelical white Christian. Right? That is my, those are my people. I'm trying to break away from it, but those are my people. <laughs> When my people, who were the ones who taught me to have a high view of sexuality, begin to, at least some of my people, begin to excuse things for, for a nation state or for a person to win an election, it begins to erode any credibility. When I was young, there was a thing called the moral majority. Anyone ever? You're too young. But there was a thing called the moral majority. One person in the back. Religious conservative evangelicals were the moral vanguard who shook their finger at everyone else when it was politically expedient. And then once it's politically expedient to just kind of shut up, they just be, be quiet or actually make ridiculous arguments the opposite way. I've never, I, I try so hard in our city not to get political, but I've been so frustrated over the past couple of weeks around this because Christians should be the ones saying, that it's not okay to treat people this way. This is not okay. And what we find, and what we find, and one of the reasons that we so misunderstand the writings of Paul and the writings of Jesus around sex and sexuality is because what, what Paul and Jesus are trying to do is to elevate the status of women. So when Jesus talks about divorce, when Jesus talks about divorce, the reason that Jesus takes such a hard line against divorce is because in that culture, a man could toss a woman to the side at any point he wanted. It, marriage isn't working out. She burns the, the tabbouleh or whatever it is they, they, they cook in the ancient world. Doesn't make the hummus right. He can offer her a certificate of divorce, and she's gone. The woman, on the other hand, is stuck. And, Paul, or, and Jesus says, no, like you, that's, that's not okay. And so when Paul, what you notice is that Paul's writings about sex are pointed primarily towards men. And the reason it's primarily pointed towards men is because actually ancient Greco-Roman people were actually kind of prudish around sex for women and a lot of other people. It was just free men, like Roman men could do kind of whatever they wanted. But there was a fairly high purity culture around for women. And so what Jesus does and what Paul does is they flip the script. I want to read to you this quote from Larry Hurtado. Um, I probably am butchering, butchering his name. But um, he says this. He said, in the Roman era, there was a double standard in sexual practice. Women were generally held to a, a standard of strict marital chastity. Men, however, were allowed considerable more freedom to have sex with many others. Although sex with other men's wives was not approved, all other kinds of sexual activity were openly tolerated and actually encouraged. And a man whose name I cannot pronounce, in the fourth, who is a fourth century orator, put it, we Romans have prostitutes for pleasures, slaves for our daily desires, male and female, and wives to give us legitimate children and to guard our households. He continues on. In this setting, Paul's exhortation to sexual integrity given mostly to men Project a radically different standard among Christians. 
He makes the unusual move of holding men to the same standards of holiness and honor expected of women, of women, thereby challenging the dominant double standards in the time. The church, followers of Jesus, we should be the ones setting the standard. Now, the other thing I think that's just kind of a, an interesting side note is, is the, the words of Paul and the words of Jesus around sex are, are directed to a specific culture and a specific time and place. And it doesn't mean we can't learn anything because there's, there's themes we keep seeing popping up over and over. But it does mean that we need to be a bit careful. We need to be a bit careful when creating um, arguments based on particularly Paul's writings um, particularly around same-sex relations, right? Even conservative scholars now, when talking about same-sex relations, would say, like, you're on shaky ground when using some of those texts. You've got to find a more broader argument based in Genesis or something else. Right? So we need to understand the, the setting of what Paul, where, how Paul is writing these letters and who he is writing these to. He is writing to a, into a very specific view of sexuality that dominated the Greco-Roman world. And we'll talk more about this um, next year in our sex series. Um, okay, I'm done talking about sex. Now on to idolatry. Um, the morning, there was, a, there was almost applause. Um, <laughs> 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this. He says, therefore, my friends, flee from idolatry. Two things that Paul keeps, Paul says to flee from. Flee from sexual immorality and flee from idolatry. At the core of the early Christian gatherings was the taking of bread and wine. They were symbols that you were being united into the body of Christ. They were symbols um, that you were participating in Christ's self-giving love, into Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And no matter your status, no matter your background, you were welcome to that table. But there was another table down the street. There was also a meal and also a table being offered at the local temple. And there was all these gods in the ancient Near Eastern world that were gods for Zeus and all these different, different deities. And so Paul says this. He says, um, he says uh, listen, you can't come in here and drink the cup of the Lord and have the cup of Daemonian, too. I went ahead and put the original Greek word there. Um, he said, listen, you can't come in here and drink the cup of the Lord and have the cup of Daemonian, too. You can't have part in both the Lord's table and the table of Daemonian. Now, what is Daemonian? It kind of sounds like how it's translated. Some of your Bibles probably translate it demons. Now, the problem is, um, once again, Western, European, Western Europeans um, helped us develop, particularly through Dante, the ideas of demons as these like, things that sit on your shoulder and breathe fire or whatever it is that we think of as demons. But in the, in, in, in the Greek context, um, they stood for demigods, demigods who um, we would see as, as spiritual beings that are in rebellion against the all-powerful God of the world. But they would not have seen them as being an all-powerful God. But these demigods had... Um, fears um, that they were the gods over. So they would be the god of war or the god of sex. Um, and and one, I want to show you a quick slide. Uh, one, of the, one of the gods um, or goddesses would have been the goddess Roma. So there's a statue of the goddess Roma in Rome. And then on the one side of the coin is Caesar. And on the back side of the coin is Roma. These deities, these demigods, are 
tightly woven within the political and the societal structures of the ancient Near East or of the Roman Empire. So you would worship the goddess Roma. You would sing songs. To, you could worship and sing songs. You would, you would offer a sacrifice of gratefulness to this goddess for the success and the power and the might of the Roman Empire. You would say, we're so thankful. We're so grateful. This is why um, their the, the sacrifice is so tied up with these gods that butcher shops would actually be at the temples, which is why you could get cheap meat. Um, Roman gods... Roman gods represented the deification of powers that humans wanted to harness for themselves and the benefit of their tribe. Say that again. Roman gods, or these demigods, represented the deification of powers that humans wanted to harness for themselves and for the benefit of their tribes. They had gods to sex, and to war, and to archery, and to music, and to weather, and to military power. They were everywhere. If you've been to Rome, there are little temples or big temples everywhere. They were on every corner. There was a temple to one of these gods. Returning back to um, Larry Hurtado, he says, early Christians lacked any of the things typically that comprise religion in the Roman world. There were no shrines. There were no temples. Therefore, no statues of the deity. There were no altars, and there were no sacrifices and no priesthood. This was totally bizarre in a culture saturated with temples and gods. To deny the gods their worship was effectively to deny the deity, to deny the reality. He continues, and the withdrawal of the newly converted Christians from the ubiquitous veneration of the gods in public and family, in public and family environments was seen as abrupt and arbitrary, unjustified, and deeply worrying. They're like, what are you doing? When when these people, when when the early Christians gave their allegiance to Jesus and left all these other gods behind, it freaked their friends and neighbors out because nobody did this. Nobody did this. You would always, even if you found like a new god to worship, you still had all the other gods. So all of a sudden, this, this ultimate allegiance to say all these other gods, they lose their place. They are no longer have any power, any rule over my life. I give them no, I give them no respect. I only give respect to, to, to King Jesus. They're like, can't you have Jesus and Roma? Can't you have Jesus and Zeus? All these gods, and this is so key, all these gods governed various arenas of human life. And one's family and, the, and city and national gods were guardians against plague and fire and disaster. And refusal to participate in their worship would have been taken as disloyalty to one's family and one's city and is disregard and is seen as disregard for the welfare of one's neighbor. So when a big plague comes... They know who to go after. We did not see you down at the, temple, the plague temple, whatever the God that protects you from the plague was. This is your fault. And what we need to understand, and I, I, you could do like an entire sermon series on this, and I touched on it this morning, and I don't know that I did it well, um, but there is political implications to Paul's comments about resisting idolatry. There are political implications, because in the ancient Near Eastern world, the worship of idols, the worship of gods, was tied up within the nation state. And, and, and one of the people who ends up getting deified is actually the emperor. The emperor becomes a god, becomes one other person you worship. You worship the ruler of the empire. You worship nationalism. 
You worship national security. You worship your own well-being. And you are willing to sacrifice anything at the altar of the gods who promise you security and the gods who promise you peace. And then here comes along these ridiculous people committed to a hippie from the Middle East by the name of Jesus. And what they say is, no, our allegiance, our, our life is devoted to King Jesus. Our hope for the future is not in some God in a temple, but our hope for the future is King Jesus. The gods, the gods, the idols are the things in our life, are the things in our life that we exalt, that we give ultimate allegiance to because we believe that they give us hope in a future. It can be a nation state, it can be nationalism, it can be your job, it can be a relationship. Your idol, the idol in your life is that thing that you say, if that goes away, if I have it, life is good and life is happy. But if that goes away, everything falls apart. And Paul says, the only thing that should have that place in your life is the risen King Jesus. Your identity, your hope, the ground of your being should be in Christ Jesus. The Jesus movement is a paradox of radical inclusivity with an exclusive focus on a faithful obedience to Jesus. And as we come to take the bread and a cup in just a moment, as we gather around this table, we are signaling with our bodies our allegiance to the kingship of Jesus. And so as you come forward, you know, we always, we always come forward, we always enter the, this time with a prayer of confession where we confess to God and to one another. But I would ask you this evening, as you're preparing to come forward, just begin to ask yourself, what are those things in your life that you've given ultimate importance to? Those things that if they disappeared, the things that you think if you have, your life will be happy and fulfilled and things are going to be good. But if those things go away, everything falls apart. What are those things, what are the things that you've allowed to become an idol? And then just confess it. We all have them. They, they're insidious. They slip in. We don't even realize how quickly they end up getting our allegiance. And as you come forward, just commit that your ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. As we come forward to receive the bread and the cup, confess whether it is power or politics, relationship. Confess the things that you have given allegiance to. And continue to ask God to help you on your journey of putting your complete and ultimate trust in the risen Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of Paul. We thank you for the early Jesus followers who stumbled and failed and tried desperately to figure out what it, mean, what it meant to live as your followers in a world that didn't make it easy. I pray that you'd continue to shape and to form us into people who look like, look like you, who reflect your love and your grace and your humility and your sacrificial love to a world that is watching. In Jesus' name, amen.